welcome to the weekly review with Roman. I don't know why I'm sounding so excited because a lot of terrible things are happening in the world. However, thanks for tuning in. Today it's Friday, September 6, 2019. Appreciate all the folks tuning in. I'm glad to be back. I missed last week, so big thank you to Azalea Martinez for sitting in and doing the show. <sighs> Taking a deep breath, and there's a lot to get to this week. And We'll get to what we can here. I'm going to take a deep breath in, deep breath out. (sighs) We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio here in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land, and one resource I wanted to direct folks to is go to conspireforchange.org forward slash resources forward slash decolonization. There's a lot of great suggested reading lists there, including a native land interactive map and contemporary Ohlone history and many more links to some information. So I wanted to provide that for all the listeners out there. I'll be getting into some news stories today and playing some music in between. I'll start off the show with a band I just heard about. Um, big thanks to Nikki for turning me on to them. And that's a band called Awa, and that's A-W-A. And the last song was called Hana Mashu Al-Yaman. And the first song was called Habib Galbi. Uh, you can find that on, on YouTube. They have their own channel, and I will most likely play some more music by them throughout the program. Oh, goodness. So uh, August, oof, the end of August wrapped up. There was the month of momentum actions outside ICE headquarters in San Francisco. A lot of folks came through and just want to send a lot of love out to all the organizers and all the folks out there who showed up. And also all the folks around the country who are showing up and protesting and taking action to to stop ICE. And a reminder that ICE only was formed in 2002. So it was like the Department of Homeland Security Act. If, if you want to uh, take a look at all the folks who signed that into being, uh, including many Democrats, uh, that's the Department of Homeland Security Act, which led to the creation of the TSA, which we all know causes a lot of harm, as well as ICE. And indeed, it's these organizations that were created under the guise of keeping people safe. However, they're causing a lot of harm to many, many people and have throughout the years. And also just a reminder that many of us in the world are older than these organizations. So we can, we've lived before they existed and we can live uh, after their abolishment. And think about all the resources, all the money and time and energy that goes into creating these organizations that cause harm. And what if those, what if people... I don't know, got paid to actually help people instead. What if that money went into healthcare and education and housing? These are, to me, it doesn't sound that complicated. However, I guess to a lot of folks it is. And I want to speak things into being, and perhaps we won't be around to see it, either due to climate change or to neoliberalism and or fascism and folks refusing to acknowledge what's happening. However, I do believe it's possible to have a world free of militarization and criminalization we have a world where we can rehabilitate people and help people instead of harming people and torturing people and being cruel. I think most of us want that. And I feel it's also important to recognize that the narrative out there 
corresponds to the truth of what's actually happening. And I think that's a big problem is that with corporate media and a lot of people in positions of power, they lie and they use a lot of fear mongering and they want to get people against each other instead of coming together and recognizing that the ruling classes, the oligarchs are the ones causing harm. So if we can all come together and unite and share our resources, we could live in a, in a better world. And as long as there are folks out there spreading lies and spreading propaganda, then there are folks who are going to listen because they don't know any other alternative sources. And they're going to believe it and they're going to take out their frustration and their anger on folks who don't deserve it. So how do we create the world where we all unite and we don't punch down we don't harm people who are also suffering, but we come together and hold people who are responsible accountable. I'm talking about war criminals here. I'm talking about billionaires who have more than enough money that they will ever need in their entire lives, while there are folks who are starving and can't afford housing. <sighs> I want to speak that into being, and maybe it's naive of me, and at the same time, if we're not fighting for this type of world, where people feel safe and secure and have their basic needs met, then what's the point? And now on to some terrible news. <laughs> I wish I had to... No, I should... I'm going to correct myself. I'm also going to provide a, a trigger warning because we are talking about what's happening in the world and state violence is present everywhere. And of course, this is uh, just a two-hour program. A majority of that... Not the majority, but a big chunk of that goes to music to whew, cleanse the palate, as it were, and just recognize that there's art out there, which is beautiful. And art's so important. And I uh, also do want to just talk about what is happening because there's a lot of stories that either don't make it to the mainstream media and or if they do, it's skewed in a way where they are oftentimes quoting and believing the people causing harm as opposed to people protecting themselves from the state. <sighs> okay. I don't quite have a... Uh, if you're listening for the first time, I tend to put the show together and when I say I I mean we because what I'm merely a conduit here I am sharing stories that other folks have written I'm sharing music that people other people have created and I'm really a conduit so I'm like uh it, it's very I don't it's it's a unusual way to, to talk about this I guess I host the program and also um I'm merely putting forward the work of others so I wanted to make a note of that and to credit so many folks out there with doing the real work, which is reporting on what's happening, which with putting their bodies on the line, there are so many different things that folks are doing, and I wanted to, to credit that. There's a lot of protests that have been happening against ICE, and a lot of things don't necessarily make the news. So there's a few stories I'm going to read, first of all, here. And also, I think what I was trying to mention before is that sometimes I have a list of the things I'm going to talk about, and I don't know the order. Oftentimes, it's a little bit DIY. Well, it's very DIY. It's very much put together and bare bones, do what we can here and try to get to as, as much as we can and also recognizing there's there is so much that we won't get to. So wanting to acknowledge that as well. And there's a story which I think a lot of folks hadn't, well, I know I hadn't heard about. Um, this was like reported in the AP, which is a pretty neutral middle-of-the-road publication, and we do want to focus more on independent orgs. However, this was something I didn't, hadn't heard anywhere else, and that's from in, come, bleh, 1216, and I'm already making up words. 
Okay, from the AP, this article came out on August 31st, 30, 31st, wow, I take one week off and I'm gonna, okay, from the AP, woman tosses Molotov cocktail into Florida citizenship office. And this was written by Colleen Long and Michael Balsamo, and it came out on August 31st, 2019. And they're reported on it in uh, Washington. A woman tossed a lit Molotov cocktail into the lobby of a U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services office in Oakland Park, Florida. No one was reported injured. According to a report of the incident sent to 45's administration officials and viewed by the Associated Press, the woman walked into the office Friday afternoon and hurled a bottle filled with gasoline and a lit fuse. The fuse disconnected from the bottle and did not ignite. Oh. According to the report, law enforcement, uh, so law, they're quoting law enforcement officials and and so on and so forth. And the woman, uh, Cecilia Hunt, was charged with maliciously attempting to damage or destroy a government building by fire. And um, she's expected to appear in federal court in Fort Lauderdale um, on Tuesday, which would have been this previous Tuesday. And no one was injured. And... I just think it's so just recognizing that many of these ICE agents are torturing people and instead they're going after it and they're arresting someone who's trying to stop that from happening. So anyway, wanting to share that, the story here, because someone taking it into their own hands and wanting to, to share that. And I also believe I heard something also happened in one of the offices in Tennessee as well. I don't have that up at the moment, but I do want to go to another story, which is connected in a way. And that's, oh goodness, it's from Yahoo News, which I know is super mainstream. However, this was the, the main source of this. And it's an exclusive from Yahoo News. Document reveals the FBI is tracking border protest groups as extremist organizations. So instead, once again, instead of going after the folks who are actually causing harm, they're going after the people who are trying to stop that harm from happening. There's an article that was written by Jana Winter and Hunter Walker from Yahoo News, and this came out on September 4th, 2019. You can find it on Yahoo. The FBI is monitoring groups on the border that are protesting U.S. immigration policy. According to a document obtained by Yahoo News, the FBI has gathered intelligence from people with, quote-unquote, direct access to the organizations and is monitoring their social media, according to the document called an external intelligence note that was obtained by Yahoo News. The note, which was produced by the FBI office in Phoenix and sent to other law enforcement and government agencies, said there are indications these groups are... <laughs> wow. It says that they're increasingly arming themselves and using lethal force to further their goals. Um, but when we talk about lethal force, how about the number of folks, I'm going to keep on repeating it, the number of folks who have been killed in ICE custody, either through not being able to access medication or because it's been terribly cold, they haven't been able to receive care, medical care, they've been denied care, or how about the psychological trauma of people being separated from their families? I'm going to get so angry. I don't think I can finish reading this fucking article. And they're quoting the FBI more than anything. And of course, it's just... And again, for folks who know history, you know the FBI has gone against civil rights groups throughout history. And... 
share in that. I don't have anything. I, oh, I feel fucking frustrated by this. And I want folks to recognize that the state is not, the state will allow itself to continue to cause harm. If we look at history, it's just a continuation of that. Speaking of which, oof, this article is from KUT.org. It's Austin's, Austin, Texas NPR station. And this was from back in 2017. However, it all ties in. Border Patrol Youth Program chains, trains children as young as 14 to become agents. This was written by Joe, Joy Diaz. This came out on November 30th, 2017. So if we think about the Hitler Youth... It's what's happening here in this country and has been happening here. This is from the Texas Standard. Scouting has long been considered a path for young people to learn life skills, but a program along the United States-Mexico border, and again, a lot of us don't recognize that the border is real. I'm going to put that out there, um, which just goes to show how fucking ridiculous this all is, goes a lot further than how to start a campfire or care for a park, which would be, you know, useful things to know. It's run under the auspices of the U.S. Border Patrol, and it's not so much camping in the wilderness, but rather something much more intense, closer to bona fide basic military training. Working with the reveal team from the Center for Investigative Reporting, photojournalist Sarah Blessner traveled to the border to capture images of the Border Patrol's Explorer program in action. And they have an audio clip here, um, which I haven't listened to yet, but let's play it now and listen to this. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Scouting has long been considered a path for young people to learn life skills. But a program along the border with Mexico goes a lot further than some might imagine. It's run under the auspices of the U.S. Border Patrol. And it's not so much camping in the wilderness or anything like that. It's, it's something much more intense, closer to bona fide basic training. Working with the reveal team from the Center for Investigative Reporting, photojournalist Sarah Blessner shares what she saw along the Texas and Arizona borders in a piece just published by California Sunday Magazine. Sarah, tell us a little bit more about this Border Patrol Explorer program. How'd you come across it? So the reason I photographed the Border Patrol Youth Program is because I'm doing a larger project here on the United States. Uh, I'm working on a program that focuses on patriotic education for young people. So in total, I've been to around 12 different programs. But for part of this project, I went to the program um, that is sponsored by Border Patrol uh, in partnership with Boy Scouts. And they train young people in the Border Patrol from the age of 14. So how, uh, how long have they been doing this program? It's been around for quite a while. It's, it's nothing new at all. I just had never heard of it prior. I had no idea they were training kids in Border Patrol. So prior to going and visiting and, and reporting on this subject, I actually wasn't even aware that this program existed. So when you, when you got there, what did you see that, um, that struck your eye? The whole concept was new to me, so a lot of things surprised me. Um, but the main thing was I was surprised to see how many uh, of the students, well, the majority, uh, were Mexican-American. Um, second, you know, the kind of training that they did in the program surprised me, uh, ranging from firearm training to active attacker scenarios um, to high technology like virtual reality training for kids who are in Kingsville. Um, the kinds of scenarios they were experiencing were very uh, adult heavy for their age. Did you encounter anybody who had families who perhaps were uh, came illegally, arrived illegally or, or were here illegally? Yes. Did you? A few of the students I met had families themselves who came to this country illegally, and a few of them had immigrated illegally with their families um, to later gain you know, citizenship through a proper process once they were here in the U.S. But they had experienced that all firsthand, and I think they're very, very aware of the issues of Border Patrol and everything that's happening around them. But those who had experienced that, did they, did they uh, express 
feeling conflicted about what they were doing, or how did they justify uh, their participation? They, they justified it. They justified it because the Border Patrol for young people really simplifies what's happening. Um, while they had experienced the complexities themselves, uh, things had been turned into a bit of a black and white scenario, you know, good and bad. They kind of heroicize the situation. So for them, it's simply, oh, well, we're going to stop the bad ones, and then, you know, law enforcement or legal aid can help the good ones. So things were very simply divided, um, you know, which is a tactic that works pretty well for young people and adolescents. So for them, while they had experienced, um, you know, conflict themselves, and I think we're personally conflicted, um, they had a more simple mindset about it, saying that they're only going to stop the bad people, quote unquote. You, you mentioned that you've seen some of these other programs. How do, how do, the, how do other uh, programs like these compare to the Explorer program that the Border Patrol has? Um, this one stood out because I think the intensity of what they're dealing with, uh, and I think because it is a direct career path. So a lot of the kids who join other programs in the United States, maybe they do it for extracurricular activity, um, for a hobby. But in the Border Patrol, it was very particular and intense. And most of the kids who are involved in the program do end up going on to have a career in the Border Patrol um, or have some direct connection to it. Um, one of the girls named Victoria, who I met in Nogales, uh, her dad was in Border Patrol. So she grew up experiencing this lifestyle from a young age. Um, and, you know, unlike other students, she didn't necessarily want to join the patrol after she graduated. Um, and her dad kind of pushed her into doing it. So it wasn't really her own volition right away. However, she wanted to be in the Border Patrol to kind of help expand the terrain of what's happening. She's very empathetic. She wanted to help people um, and not harm them. She had kind of a heroic view of what was happening. Uh, and she was one of the oldest in the groups, too. So when I met her, she was just graduating and going on to college uh, to join the patrol, hopefully after she um, goes through school. Well, I mean, for, for a lot of uh, young people who live across uh, along the border, Border Patrol represents uh, a path to a financially stable career, does it not? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's what a lot of the kids mentioned. It was a really, really good life choice for them. Sarah Blessner's images have just been published by California Sunday. They're part of a report for reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. We'll have a link at texasstandard.org. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right. So again, you can find this article at KUT.org, and it came out on November 30th, 2017. <sighs> We've got some more <sighs> news to get to, and I'll go right into it, and then we'll take either a music break or an audio an audio break, which is playing another audio piece. Oh, goodness. <sighs> so this next article is also connected to what's happening with ICE and... I also recognize that there is also a lot of police violence that's still happening in this country, and I've talked about it on the show throughout the years, so also just recognizing that even though I have been focusing mostly on ICE in the last few months, there is a direct correlation to state militarization and criminalization in this country. So this article comes from The Forward. You can find it at forward.com, and fun fact, uh, my grandmother used to write for The Forward, so... There's that. So this article, Hundreds Protest Amazon's Ties to ICE with Never Again Action in Boston. And this came out today. It's written by Aiden Pink. Hundreds of protesters organized by the Jewish group Never Again Action marched on Amazon's headquarters outside of Boston Thursday, leading to the arrest of 12 activists who refused to leave the building. The marchers sang protest songs while walking in the streets from the New England Holocaust Memorial in Boston to Amazon's building in Cambridge, slowing traffic. 
At the Amazon building, group leaders held signs and shared information about corporate ties to immigration and customs enforcement, while Amazon employees tried to leave through the lobby with some under police escort, local TV station WCVB reported. IBM profited from the Holocaust, and we are here to say never again, organizer Sarah O'Connor said in a statement. We will not allow Amazon to continue profiting from ICE. We are here to say no business with ICE. Amazon does not provide services directly to ICE, but does provide cloud hosting services to ICE's subcontractors, according to the tech website The Verge. Amazon Web Services also hosts Department of Homeland Security databases that allow officials from numerous agencies to track immigrants. Never Again Action has led dozens of immigration-related protests since its founding two months ago. In Boston, around 1,000 Never Again Action protesters led a similar march through the city in July, going from the Holocaust Memorial to the city's ICE offices. 18 people were arrested then. You can find more articles about Never Again at forward.com. <sighs> okay. I think it's time for some more music. And I'm going to play a song that I heard on The Current today. Uh, and uh, The Current's a public radio station out of Minneapolis. And big thanks to Annie and, and Josh for sharing that with me when I visited Minneapolis many years ago and uh, got to support public radio. So playing some music here, and then we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned.
And welcome back to the weekly review. That was Bernie Worrell. And thanks to Larry Bob for sharing that song with us. Um, if you type in Bernie Worrell and sing to YouTube, you can find it there. Oh, goodness. Goodness. Okay. So I'm going to go into some more news stories. I am preparing myself because, okay. So in Boston this past weekend, there was the straight pride parade because people are fucking idiots. And for folks who have been following the history of it, it's not just, oh, hey, we're straight and uh, life's tough. Eh." It's more they're linked to white supremacist groups and they call like, quote unquote, anti-Marxist groups and just all around fascists. They, the idiot mayor of Boston, decided to give them a permit and folks came out and then many more folks came to counter protest which is great however the police i know shocking i hope you're sitting down when you're listening to this uh the police um for some reason decided to defend the fascists and attacked uh most often queer protesters as well as medics so i'm gonna read a little bit about that and then of course the mayor defended the cops and folks are i'll i'll get into it i'm gonna just share a little bit of information about the protests though so this first article comes from upriseri.com, and this came out on September 2nd, um, or technically September 3rd, or September 4th. There's a few different editions of it. And uh, Boston on Saturday was a police riot in defense of a group of homophobic nationalists and fascists. And this is written by Remy, R-E-M-I, and it was published on September 3rd, and then the on top of September 4th. So I think you can find it if you go to upriseri.com. When medics rushed to help people who were pepper sprayed or injured, the police targeted us. They would rush toward the pepper spray. They'd rush, excuse me, they would rush forward to pepper spray the medics or attempt to arrest them, or they would attack people who were already incapacitated and unable to move on their own. In the aftermath of the protests against nationalists masquerading under the guise of straight pride, uh, and the author who using the first person here, I uh, wanted to wait to gather my thoughts and recover since it was less than 12 hours ago as I write this, that I was standing outside waiting the release of a friend from jail. But unfortunately, I see people already trying to spin the events that occurred in the streets, sidewalks and parks of Boston. Before getting into anything else, it is important to know why straight pride was a complete sham. First and foremost, straight pride was everything we said it was going to be. For months, many of us tried to highlight the fact that this event was going to have nothing to do with heterosexuality. For months, we pointed out that every way in which this event was going to be a poorly concealed hate rally. There was no platform 
about straight and cisgender oppression. There was nothing related to advancing society to be a more equitable and equal place for those that reside within our borders or for those living in other countries. In the end, it was a bunch of nationalist and homophobic bullshit. The second speaker ranted about the wrongness of LGBTQ plus people existing, all wrapped up in a bunch of American flags. As a reminder, LGBTQ plus pride and the related pride parades protests are sourced back to the systemic oppression of queer and trans people. It is sourced to police raiding our bars, extorting our businesses, and violently policing our sexuality. It was sourced in the state controlling those whose ears we whispered our words of intimacy into, whose hands we held, whose lips we kissed, and whose bodies we shared space with. Pride arose from the bitterness of oppression and the joy of liberation felt at Jean Compton's cafeteria, Stonewall, and many other places. And the article includes photos of the protest. Counter-protesters arrived at the nearby park and congregated on the sidewalk just outside of it. In the streets were miles of pedestrian barricades that lined the parade route. Before the protest even started, the police snatched someone from the sidewalk and detained them. This person was searched and then released back into the crowd a couple minutes later. The police entered the crowd again after an individual spoke on their megaphone, detaining that individual for a search as well as to take possession of the megaphone. That person was also released back into the crowd. It was clear from the onset that the police were going to be hostile and were looking for any and all excuses to engage in aggressive actions. They didn't even need a reason. A short moment after seizing the the megaphone, as the crowd was singing and chanting, the police entered the crowd again and pulled the same person they searched earlier from the sidewalk and arrested them without warning or reason. Again, the parade hadn't even started yet, and people were being arrested for committing the crime of standing in the place they were told they could be standing. To quote someone who that was arrested later, I was arrested for, checks notes, complying with orders. The situation escalated as the police continually opened the barricades to rush into the crowd and randomly arrest people, as well as indiscriminately use pepper spray against anyone and everyone in the area. This would continue along the entirety of the barricaded parade route. At one point, the police rushed someone, searched them while continuing to shove them with a baton while on the ground, and then just randomly got up, leaving the individual in the street. When medics rushed to help people who were pepper sprayed or injured, the police targeted us. They would rush forward to pepper spray the medics or attempt to arrest them, or they would attack people who were already incapacitated and unable to move on their own. At one point, the police managed to seize a medic bag while attempting to nab a street medic. They placed the bag in the middle of the barricaded road and surrounded it with officers and a police dog as if it was a threat. As the rally drew to a close, the police lined up on motorcycles and forced their way through the crowd. This was followed by lines of bike police that began striking protesters with their bicycles while mindlessly chanting, get back. This effort was supported by more officers indiscriminately using pepper spray. If someone fell, the officers would pummel them with their bikes, with their bikes' tires or batons and shower them with pepper spray along with anybody trying to come to their aid. The police pepper sprayed a series of journalists. A sergeant struck one of them with a baton, and I watched another journalist get blindsided, blindside tackled into the ground as he was walking away from the police line and up the sidewalk. At no point was there an audible command to disperse or any audible direction as to anywhere people could go to continue their lawful right to protest, where they wouldn't be at risk of being attacked by the police. The end result was that over 30 people were arrested and dozens of people were exposed to pepper spray. Several people suffered various injuries from blunt force trauma and falls and falls at the hands of Boston police officers. These numbers included street medics and journalists. The claim that police response was appropriate is false. The claim that the violence was because of counter-protesters or Antifa is false. 
The truth is that this was a police riot in defense of a group of homophobic nationalists and fascists. If this was any other country in the world, dot, dot, dot. And a final thought, our black POC, Jewish, queer, trans, and siblings with disabilities showed up and put themselves in harm's way. Vulnerable people put their bodies on the line, some of them paying a price for it. We don't need allies that continue to sit on the sidelines. We need accomplices that join us in the work. So, um, and about the author, his name is Remy. Remy is a Jewish and transgender street medic who has served multiple communities for over a decade, providing care through charitable efforts, humanitarianism, and activism. And Remy is the article, excuse me, Remy is the author of this article, which again can be found at upriseri.com. Oh, so wanting to provide that narrative of what happened in Boston, because many news sources will quote the police, they will lie, and it's really crucial that we have a statement from someone who was there and suffered under the under the police. And I also want to just continue on. There's a couple more pieces uh, relating to what happened in Boston I wanted to share. And the attorney, Susan Church, um, was held in contempt of court by the judge and she was someone who was defending the folks who were arrested there so i wanted to share it's about a two-minute video that was posted and if you're interested in reading more from about what happened there's uh i've gotten a lot of news through twitter some folks who have posted on twitter this piece was shared by emily gorsensky and that's emily last name is g-o-r-c-e-n-s-k-i and also uh molly who you can find at Socialist Dog Mom um, was there as well and shared a lot of information. So those are folks you can follow. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I end up retweeting a lot of people's stories and information. You can follow me at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. So let's hear from Susan Church. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm just going to make a few brief remarks. I'm, I don't really have a lot of energy to do a full press conference because I was just released after being unlawfully and unreasonably and honestly outrageously arrested for simply doing my job, for advocating for a client who the district attorney's office wanted to dismiss her charge, no process. The law is absolutely clear that the district attorney's office has the right to do that. The judge objected. The law is also absolutely clear that the judge doesn't have a right to reject it. All I was trying to do was to read the law to the court, and I was summarily arrested, handcuffed, brought down to the holding cell, held there for hours, much of the day, sat there wondering if I was going to jail that night, whether I'd be able to see my children at dinner that night, what I was going to do about my work and my clients, simply for advocating for my client. My biggest concern is this doesn't have a chilling effect for all the other lawyers out there who are fighting the good fight and who are representing people and doing their jobs. This was outrageous behavior, and um, I'm very grateful to all the people, including all these lawyers here who rushed to the courthouse to help me. Um, but honestly, this is uh, highly inappropriate behavior by the judge. And what I don't want anyone to take the message from is that you shouldn't fight, because you should fight, because this was... Um, not legal, and it should not be let to stand. Why do you think this judge is if, doing if this? I, before we take questions, I have a couple other lawyers who'd like to make a brief statement. This is Max Stern. Um, he's a criminal defense lawyer who came to represent me today. Uh, the most important thing that Susan said was that she was doing nothing other than doing her job today, making an argument on behalf of her client. Not every lawyer 
has the job to argue But in this case, it was not just an argument. It was an argument that the district attorney agreed with. And in these, these kinds of cases and in these times, we depend very much on the courts and on lawyers to be able to enforce. Okay, so that's a, a news clip from Boston. And that particular clip was shared by at Stefan Geller, S-T-E-F-A-N-G-E-L-L-E-R, and retweeted by Emily Gorsensky. <sighs> and so following up with that, so a lot of folks in Boston are super pissed, as they should be. So there is a rally happening tomorrow, which is Saturday, September 7th, 2019, happening at Boston City Hall Plaza at 1 City Hall Square. Uh, shame on Marty Walsh, a response to police violence. And this is a public event that's shared on Facebook, and it's hosted by the Boston Anti-Nazi Network. Some of the details here. On Saturday, August 23rd, Mayor Marty Walsh handed the alt-right a permit to march down the streets of Boston in a straight straight pride parade. He also gave police forces from all over the state, as well as the FBI and National Guard, a gr the green light to attack peaceful LGBTQ plus counter-protesters. Bearing Blue Lives Matter flags, they targeted medics, marshals, and press in a calculated attempt to protect the white nationalists who called for the forced removal of immigrants, a return to sexual quote-unquote normalcy, and Trump's re-election, among other things. The results of the action, while terrifying, are ultimately unsurprising. There is documented evidence that a large portion of the Boston Police Department is in fact part of the alt-right. And over the past few years, we have seen the militarization of black and brown communities progressively escalate. Countless ICE raids have taken place in Walsh's quote-unquote sanctuary city. And just last month, Operation Clean Sweep brutalized multiple folks experiencing homelessness and put them behind bars. And I'm going to make a put a pin in that and just reflect back to what's happening here in San Francisco and has been happening here with the sweeps. And it's also been happening in LA and I think also in Colorado, several cities where instead of providing resources for people who are on the street, they criminalize people and they make the things worse and they cause a lot of fucking harm. Oh, okay. Going back to this. Oh, so fucking angry. Oh my gosh. Whew. It is time to hold Mayor Walsh and the BPD accountable for their actions. This Saturday, meet us for a rally outside City Hall to demand drop the charges. The courts and city are trying to make an example of anyone arrested by way of bogus charges and outrageous punitive measures. Anti-fascism is not a crime. Next, resignation of John Danilecki. Captain Danilecki of the BPD bike unit is one of the top 50 paid public employees in Boston as of 2016 and makes $315,750.29 a year and spearheaded the brutality that we saw last Saturday. Next, resignation of Thomas Horgan. Out of the 36 protesters arraigned this week, three were ordered by Judge Thomas Horgan to stay out of Boston under threat of arrest, which is interesting, putting another pin in this, because a lot of folks who were part of the straight pride parade came in from out of Boston, similar to what the folks who went to Portland did to do, uh, came in, the Proud Boys came in from out of the city and out of state to have their protest. So it's interesting that they are not punishing the folks who actually come in to cause the disturbance. Okay. Okay, so this uh, Judge Thomas Horgan has ordered these folks to stay out of Boston under threat of arrest. He didn't explain his reasoning, but we know why he did it. The state and its agents will continue to uphold white nationalism unless we fight back. Next, and the militarization of black and brown communities, and I would imagine they mean against black and brown communities, we stand firmly against gentrification, against the criminalization of poverty, 
Home and Homelessness Against the Long Legacies of Violence Left Behind by Jim Crow's Loitering Laws and Against the War on Drugs. So again, if you're in Boston or in the Boston area or happen to be visiting or know people who are there, please um, ask folks to show up if they're able this Saturday, September 7th, 2 p.m. at Boston City Hall Plaza at 1 City Hall Square. And again, this event is on Facebook, so you can find it there. Okay, so that's a very brief synopsis of what happened uh, over in Boston, so I wanted to share that with folks. I think it's time for another music break. And um, I'm going to catch my breath here for a moment. Okay. And I'm going to play some more music from this band, Awa, and they are from Yemen, and you can find music of theirs on on youtube and here's another song called madbira and we'll be back uh, in a little bit stay tuned i 
place where there's music and there's laughter. I don't know if I'm scared of dying, but I'm scared of living too fast, too slow. Regret, remorse, hold on. No, no, I gotta go. There's no starting over, no beginnings. Time raises all. Just gotta keep on.
welcome back to the weekly review. Hopefully some music uplifted you as much as it uplifted me. That was Belly with Now They'll Sleep. I was feeling some 90s uh, memories there. And before that, First Aid Kit with My Silver Lining. Also wanted to correct myself in that the band Awa, they're technically Yemeni Israeli. So I wanted to, to share that as well. And going into some new news stories here. This is an article written by Caitlin Burns that was published in Vox. You can find it at voxvox.com. And it, came, it was updated on September 5th, 2019. So that's yesterday. Whew, taking a deep breath here. The rise of anti-trans, quote-unquote, radical feminists explained. Known as TERFs, Trans-exclusionary radical feminist groups are working with conservatives to push their anti-trans agenda. And as a trans person myself, it's really important to, again, put this out there so folks who might not be experiencing this firsthand uh, recognize what's happening and has been happening for a while now. Amy Stevens had been working in funeral services for 20 years, nearly six of which were at Harris funeral homes when she came out to her boss as transgender. She had known since she was five years old that she was a girl and had been living as a woman outside of work for some time. Though she loved her job at Harris, where she had worked her way up from apprentice to funeral director, she felt she had to hide who she was there until she couldn't any longer. In 2013, she gave the funeral home's owner, Thomas Rost, a note that she also shared with friends and colleagues. I realize that some of you may have trouble understanding this. In truth, I have had to live with it every day of my life, and even I do not fully understand it myself, she wrote. As distressing as this is sure to be my, to be my, to be my friend, excuse me, as distressing as this is sure to be to my friends and some of my family, I need to do this for myself and for my own peace of mind and to end the agony in my soul. After he read the note, Ross simply said, okay. Stevens was fired two weeks later. Ross told her that it was not going to work out. Stevens sued, claiming her dismissal was discrimination on the basis of her sex, setting off a flurry of legal activity. According to court documents, Ross testified that he fired Stevens because she was no longer going to represent herself as a man. Yeah. She wanted to dress as a woman. Ugh. Last March, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in her favor. It is analytically impossible to fire an employee based on that employee's status as a transgender person without being motivated, at least in part, by the employee's sex, the court said in its decision. An employer cannot discriminate on the basis of transgender status without imposing its stereotypical notions of how sexual organs and gender identity ought to align. Harris Funeral Homes appealed, the, appealed to the Supreme Court, which took up the case and will hear oral arguments on October 8th. In recent weeks, a flurry of amicus briefs have been filed in the case R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC and Amy Stevens. Major medical organizations, advocacy groups, and legal experts have weighed in mostly in favor of allowing trans people to be free of discrimination at work. Meanwhile, a slew of conservative and religious groups have claimed the right to fire anyone for being trans. Even President Trump's Department of Justice filed a brief in August, arguing in part that Stevens was fired by Harris Funeral Homes, not for her gender identity, but because she refused to follow her employer's, employer's dress code. Uh, 
which requires men, and by men, in quotations, the DOJ means men of quote-unquote biological sex to wear a suit with pants and women to wear a dress or skirt. The ACLU attorneys representing Stevens, in turn, argued that their client was fired because Stevens failed to perform the sex role her employer expected of her, violating the legal precedent established in 1989 in Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins. In that case, Ann Hopkins was denied promotions and a partnership because she didn't look, dress, or behave in a stereotypically feminine enough manner. Her bosses instructed her to wear more makeup and skirts to work in order to get the promotion. The court sided with Hopkins, establishing a legal standard for sex stereotyping that, is, that has fundamentally transformed the workplace for women for the past 30 years. Now that precedent is being put to the test, and joining the Trump administration and conservatives in the fight over sex-based discrimination and stereotypes are several somewhat unexpected allies, so-called radical feminist groups with long records of opposing the rights of transgender people. In their amicus brief to the Supreme Court, the Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF, writes simply, ugh, God, fucking assholes. Excuse me. They didn't write that. That's my comment on what they're saying. They're misgendering this person, and that's really fucked up, and I don't even want to fucking quote them because they're lying. Okay. Groups like Wolf are commonly referred to as trans-exclusionary radical feminists, or TERFs. They alternate among several theories that all claim that trans women are really men who are the ultimate oppressors of women. Sorry, I don't mean to yell into the microphone, but I am really fucking angry. So fucked up. Okay. Uh, Most of their ideas, this is from the TERFs, uh, like that trans women are a threat to cisgender women's safety, are based on cherry-picked ideas, excuse me, cherry-picked cases of horrific behavior by a small number of trans people. Above all else, their ideology doesn't allow for trans people to have self-definition or any autonomy over their gender expression. And they quote Wolf some more with some fucking lies. I'm going to move to the next paragraph. And if you'd like to read their lies, you can, it's, Quoted here in the article, I just can't fucking repeat the more they're fucking transphobic nonsense. The key to understanding why a self-proclaimed radical feminist group would side with conservatives arguing for the right to force cisgender women into skirts at work is to understand who TERFs are and what they've been up to for the past 50 years. Because now, under the Trump administration and a conservative majority Supreme Court, their alliance with these far-right groups could have lasting widespread consequences for trans civil rights and for the rights of women in general. Online roots of the term TERF originated in the late 2000s, but grew out of 1970s radical feminist circles after it became apparent that there needed to be a term to separate radical feminists who support trans women and those who didn't. Those who don't, excuse me. Many anti-trans feminists today claim it's a slur, despite what many see as an accurate description of their beliefs. They now prefer to call themselves gender critical, a euphemism akin to white supremacists calling themselves race realists. Interesting. In the early 1970s, groups of what would now be called gender-critical feminists threatened violence against many trans women who dared exist in women's and and lesbian spaces. For example, trans woman Beth Elliott, who was at the 1973 West Coast Lesbian Feminist Conference to perform with her lesbian band, was ridiculed on stage and had her existence protested. In 1979, radical feminist Janice Raymond, a professor at the University of Massachusetts, wrote the defining work of the turf movement, Transsexual Empire, the make, ugh, I can't even fucking read the title, it's so offensive, in which she argued that transsexualism should be morally mandating it out of existence. Oh, fucking assholes. Excuse me. Soon after, I'm going to skip that next sentence. Uh, soon after, she wrote another paper, this one published for the government funded Health and Human Services linked National Center for Healthcare Technology. The Reagan administration cut off Medicare and private health insurance coverage for transition related care. 
After those early flashpoints, the dispute between trans people and gender-critical folks simmered for the next 20 years. One exception is the high-profile conflicts at the Michigan Women's Folk Festival, or Mitchfest, or Mitchfest, which caught plenty of attention. In the 1990s and early aughts, pro-trans festival attendings organized Camp Trans, a space specifically welcoming to trans women who were otherwise banned from attending the event. The two groups clashed for a number of years until more artists and organizations boycotted Mitchfest and organizers chose to end the event in 2015. However, in the past several years, turfism has found new life and fostered fertile recruiting ground in many online spaces. Though trans people experienced a dramatic increase in visibility with the rise of trans actress Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner's headline-grabbing transition, that visibility has resulted in a growing cultural backlash. While the majority of that backlash is simply a continuation of the conservative-driven culture war, some extremist feminists, and that's feminists in quotations, have decided that trans rights go too far. Uh-huh. Sure. Turf ideology has become the de facto face of feminism in the UK, helped along by media leadership from Rupert Murdoch and the Times of London. Any vague opposition to gender-critical thought in the UK brings along accusations of quote-unquote silencing women and a splashy feature or op-ed in a British national newspaper. Australian radical feminist Sheila Jeffries went before the UK Parliament in March 2018 and declared that trans women are quote-unquote parasites, language that sounds an awful lot like Trump speaking about immigrants. According to Huron Greensmith, who studies the modern gender-critical movement as senior research associate with the social justice think tank Political Research Associates, gender-critical feminism in the UK grew out of a toxic mix of historical imperialism and the influence of the broader UK skeptical movement in the early aughts, which was hyper-focused on debunking quote-unquote junk science and any idea that considered sociological and historical influence and not just biology. Those who rose to prominence in the movement did so through a lot of non-tolerant calling out and attacking people, Greensmith said. Much like gender-critical feminism, anti-trans feminists think they have science on their side. It is bananas how ascientific their rhetoric is, and yet literally they say biology isn't bigotry. In fact, biology has been used as bigotry as long as biology has been a thing. See scientific racism, eugenics, and the justification for slavery that black people were that um, that they say black people were intellectually inferior to white people. Though turfism got its start in the U.S. in the 1970s, the ideology has largely fallen out of favor as the country's mainstream feminist movement has continuously battled against the religious right for abortion access and LGBTQ rights. In a country where political coalitions on the feminist left are crucial to the survival of basic women's rights, it doesn't make much sense to spend time oppressing a tiny population who are otherwise valuable allies in the cultural culture war. Anti-trans rhetoric, though, has power and anti-trans harassment certainly exists. While the hardcore in-person gender-critical organizing is largely run by a small handful of people, it has become sport for these self-proclaimed feminists to harass and mock trans people and their allies on Twitter and other social media platforms. Check out some of the 80-plus replies to a tweet last month, and they provide a link, by prominent feminist writer Sadie Doyle, promoting a piece she wrote denouncing TERFs. Uh, some, some accused Doyle of being a handmaid of the patriarchy, a common insult lobbied at cis women who ally with trans people. Or check the inevitable replies to my tweet sharing this piece when it goes online. And again, the author's name is uh, Caitlin Burns. <sighs> Excuse me. 
but probably where gender-critical feminism has the potential to wield the most influence is in government. U.S.-based gender-critical feminist groups like Wolf and Hands Across the Aisle, which sent a letter to the Department of Housing and Urban Development in favor of barring trans women from women's homeless shelters, are happy to work alongside conservatives to limit the rights of trans people, even if those same conservatives want to pass legislation limiting their reproductive rights. Gender-critical feminism, at its core, opposes the self-definition of trans people, arguing that anyone born with a vagina is in its own oppressed sex class, while anyone born with a penis is automatically an oppressor. In a turf world, gender is a system that exists solely to oppress women, which it does through the imposition of femininity on those assigned female at birth. Legally redefining female as... Okay, another quote from Wolf, which I'm not going to read. Again, a lot of lies in this article. Uh, and not from the point of view of the author, but from the point of view of the, the turfs here who are quoted. Uh, and I just don't want to share any more transphobic rhetoric. This conception of gender, okay, continuing on with the article. This conception of gender as a system would be relatively sound if not for the existence of LGBTQ people. Gender and sex-based oppression can be imposed on a range of people who were assigned male at birth, like gay men and, of course, trans women. In practice, however, the movement more closely resembles an organized hate campaign against a marginalized community, whether that's through online harassment or filing briefs in landmark civil rights cases. Adherents to turf ideology treat trans women, trans men, and non-binary people much differently. Gender-critical feminists blame the patriarchy for deluding trans men into thinking they can identify out of female oppression, or blame structural homophobia for convincing trans men they can become straight men rather than lesbians. Oh, gosh. And they quote uh, hands across the aisle again. Next paragraph. For anti-trans activists, establishing a narrative that trans men are really just lesbians attempting to identify out of womanhood is absolutely essential. By doing this, transitioning can be positioned as a form of conversion therapy, whereby a lesbian is forced into a male identity and de facto heterosexuality. It opens a pathway for anti-trans activists to ban trans-affirming healthcare through conversion therapy bans. However, trans men themselves have pointed out that the argument fails to take into account the bodily autonomy of trans-masculine people, and it is therefore not a feminist position. Trans author Jay Holm recently described in a recent blog post why and how gender-critical feminists work to get trans men to return to womanhood and ultimately detransition. As a trans man, I am and always will be belittled, disrespected, spoken down to, and patronized by transphobes, wrote Holm. After all, they think I have been brainwashed and fooled into thinking I'm a man. What could I possibly know? What value could my words or experience possibly have? This is, again, anti-feminist. The idea that trans men are just foolish women whose words cannot have any value is deeply troubling and mirrors patriarchal behaviors towards silly girls, no matter how old or how accomplished the women in question actually are. Non-binary people, meanwhile, are often dismissed in discussions by gender-critical feminists. Non-binary people muddle the, sci- the scientism and anti-trans feminists that anti-trans feminists rely on to justify their gender essentialism. So they choose not to acknowledge non-binary existence or agency, said Greensmith. When not erasing them entirely, TERFs will often parrot right-wing rhetoric by mocking non-binary people, suggesting they are attention seekers who don't understand their birth sex. Gender-critical propaganda is almost entirely focused on the supposed depravity of trans women, citing rare cases to paint trans women as threats to women and children. Turfs often point to the case of Karen White. White was in prison for sexual assault when she came out as a trans woman and applied to, for a transfer to a women's prison. Once there, she allegedly raped several fellow prisoners before she was eventually caught. Prison officials later admitted that they did not follow existing safeguarding procedures in granting the transfer. As a rape survivor... 
myself, and this is Caitlin Burns, the author of this piece, I find white detestable and I'm outraged that prison officials were so lax with their procedures and allowed white access to a vulnerable population of women. Where I differ from the gender critical feminists is that I don't agree that white is representative of all trans women. Gender critical feminists essentially believe the existence of trans women's penises in a women's space represents an automatic risk of rape. These are how stereotypes are weaponized against marginalized groups. Jillian Brandstetter, media relations manager at the National Center for Transgender Equality, told Vox, given transgender people's relatively recent rise into public life and the fact that many people still don't know a transgender person, we're very vulnerable to being mischaracterized, to being maligned, and to being drowned out by dog whistles. Many gender-critical feminists refuse to contend with the fact that 47% of trans women have been victims of sexual assault in their lives, instead questioning the survey methods used to reach the, the conclusion. However, many trans people don't see how such questioning is any different from cis men who claim women are falsely accusing men of rape in ever larger numbers. This supposed concern for cis women and children has become the primary method for radicalizing gender-critical feminists, similar to how Islamophobes play up threats of gang rape of white women by Muslim men, or white supremacists have historically painted black men as sexual threats to justify segregation. Defending the purity of white womanhood has always been a significant axis of common bigotries, and gender-critical feminism operates in the same fashion. With Stranger danger, drilled into the heads of women and girls from a young age, anti-trans feminists can easily paint the other as a constant sexual threat, despite the fact that studies have repeatedly shown that women are most likely to be sexually assaulted by someone they already know. If trans people are given anti-discrimination protections, Wolf writes in a brief, and... I'll just share what they say. They say it will mark a truly fundamental shift in American law and policy that trips women on their right to privacy, and that's untrue. With this hyper-focused on the supposed threat of trans women in women's spaces, gender-critical feminism ultimately lets misogynistic men slide under the radar. If everyone is watching for deviant trans women or men claiming to be trans women, who is watching for the respected public figure perpetrating horrific sexual abuse against women and girls? While gender-critical feminism has long had roots in academia, extending back to Raymond and her cohorts in the 1970s, renewed public interest in trans discourse has created opportunities for academics to make a name for themselves. Recently, a small handful of gender-critical philosophers have managed to leverage media coverage to gain a mainstream platform from which to express their transphobic views. Historically speaking, issues around sexuality and gender have been a relatively, excuse me, have been of relatively marginal importance for philosophy departments and relatively significant importance for humanities departments and the literary or cultural studies. Grace Lavery, a trans woman and professor of 19th century British literature at Berkeley told Vox, but that distinction or that institutional boundary has begun to fray. Gender-critical philosophy has become a sort of cottage industry where previously unheralded academics can achieve an online following by reciting the theory du jour in online radical feminist spaces. British, photo- excuse me, British philosopher Kathleen Stock, a self-identifying gender-critical feminist and one of the group's more authoritative figures, has written perhaps half a dozen different manifestos over the past few years expressing ever-changing views on trans exclusion and the definition of womanhood. One of the things I find interesting to watch is the changing in their positions, says said Lavery of gender-critical academics. 
I think they imagined that the questions they were asking would have easier answers than they did. I think, for example, they imagined earlier on that it was going to be quite easy to use chromosomes as a basis for a kind of biological sex distinction, binary sex distinction. And now they're more or less entirely abandoned excuse me, and now they've more or less entirely abandoned chromosomes as a singular determinant, as far as I can tell. Graduate philosophy student Krista Peterson has spent quite a bit of time tracking the positions and social media activity of gender-critical philosophers, and she explained why these philosophers seem to change positions so frequently. What's happening here is a popular movement that's coming into academia rather than these people having philosophical projects on this stuff that gives them these conclusions, she told Vox. They're getting what they're representing as philosophical conclusions from the gender-critical subreddit and other people on Twitter. Earlier this year, Lavery decided to step into the debate because, as a tenured professor, she felt like she was one of the few trans academics in a position to push back on the growing anti-trans rhetoric she was seeing around her. After initially dipping her toe into the discourse, she wrote a piece that was critical of Stock. Two gender-critical journalists shared Stock's response, and that's when Lavery really started feeling the heat. It led to a massive explosion of online harassment, which I just didn't see coming at all, she said. People in the seemingly hundreds started trying to find me and just write insulting things about me. And that escalated to the degree that it was totally out of control. At one point, people were posting the names and contact details and photographs, not only of me, but also of my colleagues at UC Berkeley online. Generally, among academics, the work of their gender-critical peers is reviewed as legitimate academic work, trusting the credentials of the philosophers who have jumped into the issue. However, when Stock was invited to speak on her own views on gender and sexuality at the Aristotelian Society in early June, her speech drew protests from several philosophers attending the conference. In recent years and months, attacks on the trans community have been led by a number of prominent philosophers and are made to seem legitimate due to the unwillingness of the wider community to speak up and protect its most vulnerable members, read a joint statement by Minorities and Philosophy UK and Minorities and Philosophy International. Not every item of personal and ideological obsession is worthy of philosophical debate. In particular, skepticism about the rights of marginalized groups and individuals, where issues of life and death are at stake, are not up for debate. Yet, this hasn't stopped Stock from being published. Her work is cited in several Amici briefs and the Supreme Court in the Stevens case, showing how gender-critical academia is assisting to legitimize anti-trans policy positions in effect. Gender-critical academics are laundering the whims of online turfs into official policy. Going to take a breather here. It's a long article. Thanks for bearing with us here. Okay. Taking a break. Moving on. This brings us back to how turfism can wield great power in policy and politics, and who they align and who will they align with to push their ideology forward. Wolf has made no bones about partnering with misogynistic and anti-LGBTQ organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, in order to oppose the livelihoods of trans people to the Supreme Court. In fact, the Stevens case isn't the first time the two groups have worked together on an anti-trans Supreme Court case. In early 2017, Wolf submitted an amicus brief opposing trans student Gavin Grimm's lawsuit to use the boys' bathroom at his school. That case was eventually remanded back to the lower court, which just recently ruled in Grimm's favor once again. 
Wolf's relationship with ADF extends beyond just filing briefs in key cases. LGBTQ Nation reported that in fiscal year 2017, the most recent year for which feminist groups' financial records are available, um, Wolf applied for and accepted $15,000 grant from the ultra-conservative group. The LGBTQ Nation report additionally revealed in 2017 that Wolf contracted with Imperial Independent Media to help with fundraising, promising a 20% commission. At the time, IIM was run by Zachary Freeman, who made a name for himself over a lawsuit to leak abortion clinic employee names to the Center for Medical Progress, an anti-abortion group known for propagating heavily doctored videos purporting to show Planned Parenthood profiting off the sale of fetal tissue. Wolf defended its deal with Freeman in its aforementioned statement to Vox. Wolf has never hired anyone who endangered the lives of abortion clinic workers, it said. Uh, and then, quote some more. Also in the statement, Wolf defended, its, it defended a recent blog post that attacked Planned Parenthood's commitment to trans-inclusive care. In fact, nearly every blog post on Wolf's site is anti-trans, posts arguing against trans women in women's prisons, trans girls in girls' sports, trans women in women's homeless shelters. There is a little, there is little call excuse me, there is little call to any quote-unquote feminist issue that isn't an attack on trans people at its core. Though it's unknown who funds another prominent gender-critical group, Hands Across the Aisle, one of its co-founders is Kaylee Triller Haver, an anti-abortion conservative who has repeatedly admitted to committing statutory rape of a teenage boy when she was a youth counselor. Anti-trans alliances with conservative groups are by no means new for gender-critical feminists. During the Irish referendum on abortion rights in 2018, some British gender-critical feminists withheld support from campaigners who supported abortion rights, citing the trans-supportive attitudes of Irish feminism, going so far as to schedule an anti-trans meeting in Dublin at the height of the campaign season. Irish feminists responded with a scathing open letter denouncing the event and reaffirming their support of the womanhood of trans women. In January, the Conservative Heritage Foundation held an event in Washington, D.C., featuring members of Wolf to discuss the Equality Act and their opposition to trans rights. Two days later, prominent British anti-trans feminists Kelly J. Keene Minchel, also known as Posey Parker, and Julia Long, who had been in town attending the panel, stormed a Capitol Hill office where Human Rights Campaign National Press Secretary Sarah McBride had just concluded a meeting between parents of trans children and legislators. The Heritage Foundation told Vox it had nothing to do with Keen, Minchel, and Long being in the U.S. and had no contract with them before or after our January 28th event and have zero connection to anything they did afterward. They filmed themselves yelling and taunting McBride with their personal gripes with the trans movement, accusing her of not caring about lesbian girls. McBride, to her credit, didn't take the bait, remaining stone-faced and focused on her computer screen while a co-worker attempted to de-escalate the situation. Brandstetter compares the deployment of so-called feminists to oppose trans rights to the white nationalist movement rebranding themselves as the alt-right to achieve a veneer of respectability. When people call organizations like these TERFs, it's doing the same job for them, she said. It's portraying it as this divide within the progressive movement or the, this divide within the LGBTQ community that only serves to benefit people who hate women and the LGBTQ community, including Heritage, the FRC, which is the Family Research Council, and the ADF. Certainly, we should not be shocked that they're desperate to sort out sort of put up decoys. I just can't imagine how you can walk through the doors of the Heritage Foundation as a heralded guest and continue to call yourself an advocate for women's equality. In the U.S., Baltimore gender-critical feminist 
Julia Beck has made a name for herself in conservative circles, appearing on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News and testifying before the House against trans inclusions in the Violence Against Women Act and the Equality Act. I sat 10 feet from Julia Beck in the House Equality Act hearing and heard her say, the violence faced by transgender women is a myth, said Branstetter, who noted that anti-trans feminists, like their conservative partners, have begun pushing a claim that trans people do not face much discrimination and violence, an assertion without evidence. Not 24 hours before she said that, not two miles from where she said that, Ashanti Carmen was murdered on Eastern Avenue in D.C. I think it's telling they have to promote this trans-violence trutherism in order to feel justified in their own hatred. According to Greensmith, Beck employed the diversionary tactic of spouting inaccuracies, forcing those engaged in debate to constantly refute them, rather than engage with the real issues. Everything she was saying was a lie, said Greensmith, referring to Beck's testimony. We keep getting trapped in that cycle of proving what she said is what she says is wrong. Here you and I are saying, but in fact, 24 hours earlier, a trans woman was killed. There will always be a trans person getting harmed because that is a reality. But instead of talking about why we need the Equality Act, we're forced to instead do what happened at the hearing. All the House Democrats and the other witnesses had to contradict Julia Beck. It worked. Having her there worked perfectly. In fairness, several prominent gender-critical feminists have themselves denounced the movement's cooperation with Archo conservatives such as excuse me arch conservatives such as Jean Hatchett who cited Wolf's connection with the ADF in a blog post stating her opposition but those appeals haven't appeared to slow down the merging of turfism with the larger conservative political apparatus just this month gender critical feminists who have been banned from Twitter for extensive transphobic harassment have recently organized under the alt-right message board gab to form spinster a social media platform for turfs it remains to be seen whether the British message board Mum, Mumsnet will remain the epicenter for gender-critical messaging, but the movement's growing connections with anti-abortion and violent misogynist movements should concern both cisgender and transgender women. According to Brandstetter, the recent gender-critical wave has largely failed to gain traction in the U.S. outside of the very far-right spheres. I don't think American women are buying it, she said, pointing out that nearly every major U.S. feminist advocacy group is vocally pro-trans rights and inclusion. It's because they understand what it means to be marginalized. They understand that any strict rules placed around gender are to the benefit of nobody. Conservative groups, in turn, have made a conscious decision to use feminist language and framing to oppose trans rights, which is how we ended up with some of the most vehemently anti-woman politicians in the House voting against the Violence Against Women Act in the name of, quote-unquote, protecting women and girls. This unholy alliance, backed up with academic scholarship written by TERFs, could end up having devastating consequences to the standing of women and girls in the U.S. and across the globe. In the Supreme Court case, Wolf is taking the side that claims employers have the right to mandate that women wear skirts by arguing that Amy Stevens believes that only women can wear skirts. If Wolf truly believed in the abolition of gender as it claims, it would be petitioning to allow Stevens to present at work in whatever gender she wishes without risk of being fired. Wolf's argument reveals the big gender critical lie. It's more important to TERFs to put cis women in a stricter box and enforce sex-based dress codes than it is to give trans women equal employment rights. And if TERFs prevail, then all women and non-binary people lose. 
Uh, Caitlin Burns, who's the author of this piece, is a freelance journalist based in Washington, D.C. She was the first openly transgender Capitol Hill reporter in U.S. history. Her other work can be seen in the Washington Post, Teen Vogue, Vice, and many others. And uh, there's a correction. Uh, an earlier version of the story cited links that appeared on hands across the IELTS website. The links to various groups do not reflect any known ties. This piece also has been updated to include a statement from the Heritage Foundation. And again, you can find this piece written by Caitlin Burns, and that's Caitlin with a K, um, at Vox.com. And it came out on September 5th. And that leads me to leads us to the next story. This came out from uh, Out, which you can find at Out.com. Teenaged Bailey Reeves is the 17th trans person killed in 2019. She died on Labor Day. A vigil will be held in her honor on Friday, which is today. And this is written by Michael Street. And it came out on September 4th. There's an update from September 5th. After news broke that a trans teen had been killed in Baltimore on Labor Day, police confirmed that the victim's name was Bailey Reeves. A vigil is planned in her memory for life on Friday in Baltimore. Uh, and according to WMAR2 News, the teen's body was found by a 16-year-old who said they heard three gunshots and a girl screaming, my friend, somebody help my friend. It says police have not released any details about the victim, um, aside from what we shared about her name. An Instagram account identified the victim as 17-year-old Bailey, and uh, the post also said the victim was shot in the torso. And they have a photo of her here on out. Uh, this Baltimore death means that at least 17 trans people have been killed this year. Of that number, the vast majority are black trans women. Of those, at least 11 of those have died as the result of gun violence. In honor of the life of Tracy Single, the 16th trans person to be murdered this year, the city of Houston lit City Hall and a few bridges with the colors of the trans flag in August. You can find more information at out.com. And with that, I'm going to play some music by the band Gloss. And this is from their album, Trans Day of Revenge. Yeah! 
welcome back to weekly review that was gloss with the full album trans day of revenge gonna get to a couple more things here before we wrap up today thanks again for listening please do support mutiny radio we got shows here every day of the week for more info go to mutinyradio.fm you can donate directly to the station and dues is how we we keep the doors open here if you'd like to support this show in particular we have a patreon account that's up patreon.com forward slash weekly rev a big thank you to all the folks who donate it means a lot so thank you so much and if you're able to donate anywhere from a dollar a month and more we greatly appreciate it so please do check out our patreon account Next up, a couple more things. Oh, fuck. Okay. So next up, there is a, a hurricane, hurricane Dorian, which hit the Bahamas and going to play. Um, there's uh, video footage that ABC News shared. Um, I've shared it on Twitter as well. And uh, it's just totally decimated. And it's important just to like recognize what's happened there. And nearly 400,000 people uh, live in the Bahamas. And uh, so they have footage that they've showed of uh, the Abaco Islands. So just there's been widespread uh, damage and destruction. And I wanted to share that with with folks. (sighs) (sighs) Oh, goodness. Um, coming up, also wanted to, and it's, I mean, recognizing that all these things are happening simultaneously and also wanting to link, uh, climate change to corporations and militarization and capitalism. And I'll, won't get a chance to read this full story, but did want to share the headline at least that folks can find in the intercept. And that's ExxonMobil is funding centrist democratic think tank disclosures reveal. And this was written by Kate Aronoff, and again, you can find it at theintercept.com. Uh, this came out on September 6th. I'll read the first paragraph. The Progressive Policy Institute, a centrist democratic think tank that grew out of the party's pro-business wing of the 1980s and 90s, received $50,000 from ExxonMobil in 2018 via its parent organization, the Third Way Foundation, according to the oil giant's 2018 Worldwide Giving Report. ExxonMobil did not return the Intercept's multiple requests for comment. In an email, PPI Executive Director Lindsay Lewis said that the money was used for general support and that we only accept general support funding from corporate interests. We do, we do not do paid for work research or have any donor-run programs. Lewis also confirmed that this is the first time ExxonMobil has donated to the Third Way Foundation. And I guess I'll continue reading on just a little bit more here as we do have a time. Though it's a first, PPI's new donor isn't so dramatic a shift from its fundraising record. The Intercept's uh, Akila Lacey has also found that PHRMA, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, has annually donated between $25,000 and $75,000 to the Third Way Foundation since 2009, upping its donation to $265,000 in 2016, the same year that Medicare for All, which the trade group and PPI both oppose, entered the national spotlight. Donations dipped back to normal levels in 2017, although documents were not yet available for 2018 when the piece was published in late April. In the last couple of years, Exxon has taken up softer messaging on climate than either the Koch brothers or the Mercer family. With Did we also mention that uh, David Koch died? Happened a couple weeks ago. I wasn't sure if I was on the show. Just wanted to mention that, put that out there. Okay. All right. With business all over the world, Exxon, like 
every other multinational oil company is well accustomed to operating in environments where denying the reality of the climate emergency outright is politically unthinkable. As climate concerns spike around the U.S., the company is still plenty opposed to environmental regulations and the lawsuits being lobbed its way from climate vulnerable communities and attorneys general who are each calling into question Exxon's role in feeling both the climate crisis and misinformation campaigns about it. Rather than paying people to say that there is no problem at all, it can rebrand as a good faith actor in the climate fight with peons to carbon capture technology, low carbon fuels, algae, and carbon taxes that also conveniently exempt it from some of the lawsuits and regulations it's most worried about. The decades of climate denial Exxon helped fund, and now the Trump administration, have dragged the national debate on climate change so far into the gutter that there are influential liberals willing to give the company credit simply for not denying the science. This all dovetails well with a centrist approach to climate politics that's long sought common ground with industry and harbors both temperamental and ideological opposition to big confrontational proposals like the Green New Deal. The upshot is that they've started to sound a lot alike. Carbon capture, R&D, and carbon pricing, while not mutually exclusive with the Green New Deal framework that the Sunrise Movement, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others have begun to flesh out, have reliably been wielded as a cudgel by establishment types against calls for more sweeping action. Kurt Davies, founder and director of Climate Investigation Center, noted that the report indicates the money PPI received was through a corporate giant rather than through the ExxonMobil Foundation. We have never sussed out how two black boxes of money are managed or doled out. So if you grab the ExxonMobil Foundation 990s, there are sometimes different descriptions or breakdowns of the funding, but this grant won't be there, he wrote in an email. There is no need for public accounting of such grants, no obligation, but they have seemed compelled to disclose them through the years. But they have, excuse me, but they have seemed compelled to disclose them through the years. Of course, $50,000 is not an enormous amount of money, either to PPI, either, either for PPI or ExxonMobil, but it may well signal a shift in the fossil fuel industry's relationship to climate politics. Oh, goodness. Okay. With that, I'm going to stop reading. You are welcome to read the rest of the article. Again, you can find it at The Intercept. And yeah, a lot more. So also just checking in how everything is connected. So going to end up the show there. Apologies for not a lot of positive news here on the show. But again, uh, um, when there is positive news, I'm happy to report it. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll be back next week. How about some good music to to end on? Ah, uh, goodness. All right. There's a band called, that was called Gay Dad, and uh, there's a good rock song called Dim Star. And uh, we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody.